You're listening to One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. And I'm Richard Dearlove, former Chief of British Intelligence, otherwise known as MI6. Together, Richard and I look at the key strategic choices and decisions that have global impact. We hear from the key decision makers, players and experts, how they arrive at the choices they face and how they impact us all. This week, a delegation from Ukraine is in Washington, D.C., talking to lawmakers and business leaders as part of their ongoing campaign to help drum up support for Ukraine in the fight against Russia. It's a particularly important time as Congress is currently arguing over a vast spending bill that involves more than $60 billion of aid for Ukraine. Republicans are refusing to pass this bill unless Democrats tack on new restrictions in spending over its southern border with Mexico. Both sides seem unlikely to come to an agreement before the Christmas holidays, which could mean very bad news for Ukraine. We're now almost two years into this full-scale invasion launched by Vladimir Putin, that anniversary of course coming up on the 24th of February 2024. There have been some key victories for Ukraine and some important losses, but perhaps most crucially now, what is to all intents and purposes a bitter stalemate in which Russia may end up having the edge with time very much on Vladimir Putin's side. You may remember Alexander Kamishin. He is the man behind the incredible success of the Ukrainian railways a network that ran almost entirely to schedule, despite Russian aerial bombardment, influxes of mass migration and complex and sophisticated supply lines of crucial humanitarian and military supplies from all across Europe. He famously apologised earlier this year for delaying some of his trains to give way to Rail Force One as Biden made his way on train tracks to the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv ahead of the one-year anniversary. Only 90% of our trains arrived on time yesterday, he tweeted. I apologise. Well, for those of us who are Brits, where it feels like 90% of our trains are either delayed or cancelled, we may remember that statement with rather painful jealousy. Alexander is now no longer in that post of running Ukraine's rail, but now he's running a new government department, Strategic Industries. Put simply, he is now Ukraine's procurement manager-in-chief, He's been tasked with the daunting challenge of getting Ukraine what it needs to fight the war against Russia. Richard, you actually met Alexander Kamishin before when you were in Kyiv earlier this year. So I'm keen to hear your assessment of how he's been doing and where we are in terms of Ukraine's stockpiles and the military and military aid it's managing to get. Well, the meeting with him was memorable. He is really quite a charismatic figure and we spent a couple of hours with him in late May. What was quite striking was he walks into the room and he's in black jeans, he's got a black t-shirt, he's got a ponytail. Well he had a ponytail then, I don't know if he's still got it. He Never has, judge a, a book by its cover Richard. I know but he has a completely unexpected appearance. He was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Of course, he had just made his reputation in the early stages of the Russian invasion after the February because he'd kept the railways running. And not only did he keep them running, I mean, the, you know, the great story about him is he apologised to Zelensky because one of the trains to Kharkiv was seven minutes late. Um, <laughs> and, you know, as we travelled in and out of Kiev by train from Poland... 
I was, you know, it was just so impressive how efficient, clean the railways were, how everything was working smoothly, you know, despite the fact this was a country at war and you traveling in a blacked out train overnight. And he had just been shifted from this position running the railways to being responsible for strategic defense industries. And in effect, basically, he was being put in charge of all of the supply of armaments to the Ukrainian military. So an absolutely key position. And I think one could understand very quickly why. This is a man of phenomenal energy, but phenomenal clarity of mind. And he obviously is a superbly gifted administrator and organiser. I would imagine that's his sort of strong point. And um, he doesn't waste his breath talking about let's say, marginal issues. He has an intensity of focus, which is quite gripping when you're in conversation with him. I hope listeners will, will get an idea from my description of the sort of impact he makes. And I'm not someone who's particularly easily bowled over by people. He certainly was one of the most impressive people in that sort of situation that I've met in a very long time. That's so interesting to hear. And I think it's so fascinating. You point out that on first impressions, he didn't look as you might have expected of a very, very senior government official. But perhaps that's one thing the Ukrainians are doing so well is that they are thinking outside of the box. They are doing things unexpectedly. And the way Ukraine has shifted in terms of using tech and how it's adapting to changing conditions on the battlefield, they've been doing some really interesting and ingenious things. Let's hear from the minister, Alexander Komishin himself. Minister Alexander Komishin, welcome to One Decision. It is so great to have you on the program. You're obviously talking to us in Washington, and it is a pivotal week for Ukraine because, of course, the United States are trying to work out if they are going to be able to pass this bill, which has this huge aid package for Ukraine, aid that is desperately needed by your country. I want to ask you about the new job that you have, your efforts to try and procure the weapons that Ukraine needs, and what the mood is like, not just among your government and your colleagues, but also back home. But first of all, do tell me how you have found this trip. Have you received assurances from American lawmakers that support for your country is still strong? President Zelensky, he has repeatedly tried to make the case that the Ukrainians don't just want charity. They don't just want donations from the West. They want partnership. They're presenting this as a, uh, an opportunity for investment, as you say. But also, it sounds like the more Ukraine embeds its defense industries, its companies, its military hardware with the West, the easier it is to accede into NATO and to share some of that risk, right? That's true. We are here to promote opportunities in the defense industry from US can find in Ukraine. And uh, these opportunities can help US defense industry to ramp up production capabilities. Because again, in Ukraine, we grew three times this year compared to prior year. And our capabilities for the next year are already six times higher. No single nation can withstand in this war, stand alone, because again, that's the largest world generations. That's something I've heard you talk about a lot recently, how Ukraine has managed to ramp up its own production of military hardware since last year. It's been a huge increase. Obviously, it's not enough. Do you think you will be in a position to obviously not be able to 
withstand the Russian onslaught without support from the US, which is, of course, incredibly vital. A lot of your production now has been moved overseas because, of course, Ukraine is being absolutely hammered by the Russians. But given that the Russians themselves have also dramatically increased their own productions, can you give us any kind of sense of your progress in that and perhaps then give us uh, an idea of how much you depend still on a lot of help from your partners? Julia, again, uh, Russians never stopped their defense industry in the last 20 years. And uh, we just start the growth of the industry and uh, bringing it back to life, actually. Uh, for instance, in 2021, we produced just zero ammunition. And uh, we are working hard on bringing that uh, production back to some decent levels. But again, all free world together can cover that need with its uh, production capabilities for one year. So that's why we are still dependent on the help. And again, our capabilities for the next year are already higher than the funding capabilities uh, in Ukraine. So we really uh, waited for that help, and that would be really important for us. My colleague Sir Richard Dealov was in Ukraine earlier this year. He met you and many of your ministerial colleagues back on his trip to Kyiv. And back then, and, and this was sort of a late spring, early summer when he made the trip, he received the message from your government that ammunition and particularly shells were top of the wish list. The number of rounds that Ukraine is burning through every month is huge. It has been dwindling in, in most months. There was a big, big, big push by the Ukrainian government appealing to Europe and to America to send more ammunition, more shells, and particularly those 155 NATO standard shells for use against the Russians. That was communicated as a really critical need for you. How are you doing on your stocks of shells and at what point do you run out? We don't discuss exact numbers. I just would say that in uh, artillery shells, in about 155, that's something we never produced in Ukraine before. And that's something we are highly dependent on the supply of uh, critical things like charges, like uh, explosives and propellants. And uh, that's where we face the same uh, issues with supply chain as the whole world. So we are negotiating that things now as well, because again, without that things, we can't produce rounds. And speaking about all the other things, we understand the priority of ammunition. And uh, again, uh, no matter how much we grow, it's never enough. You said on an interview recently with Christian Amanpour that you were working on joint production of ammunition, particularly those very critical 155mm shells in Ukraine and neighbouring countries. I don't know if you're able to talk about which neighbouring countries you are doing that joint production with. Are you able to talk to us about that manufacturing and how the process is going? Julia, we consider a number of neighbor countries at this point. Again, this discussion will take some time. And finally, we will uh, be able to start that production in a few years. Of course. I mean, the scale of the challenge is hugely daunting. And I mean, all kudos to the Ukrainians for thinking outside of the box and the ingenuity that has been involved in this almost two years. Crazy to think how time has been passing. While you have been in Washington, while you've been overseas with your defense minister, with President Zelensky and his top advisor, your home country has come under increased attack by the Russians, a really, really heavy bombardment of the capital city of other parts of Ukraine. The Russians are clearly trying to send a message here. 
Your military chief recently described the situation on the ground as a stalemate. That caused a bit of friction with your president. Does your defence minister have a point? And have you had tough questions from your friends and allies in the US over the state of the counteroffensive this year, which a lot of people say really failed to make the ground that it was hoped, although there are, of course, a lot of reasons for that, not not least of all, Ukraine not receiving as much military aid as it had hoped, and also perhaps a unrealistic expectations on the part of the West. Julie, indeed, I am speaking often with our brave warriors from the front line, but I'm always focusing on the weapon and ammunition they use, on their experience, on their feedback, and that's where I'm focusing on. And I would tell that in our production, in our research and development, there is no any any sign of stalemates. So we constantly focus on growing the capabilities and making those things that fire Russians better. So... In my industry, it's working well. Can you talk to us about uh, some of the conversations that you've had with the US defense industry? Are you able to talk to us about who you might be working with? Are there anything you can announce to us? Are you talking to, I don't know, companies like Raytheon or Lockheed Martin? Who Who, who is it that you have had uh, fruitful conversations with? Yesterday, uh, I've got a meeting with my president and US defense industry. We've got 10 major companies coming from ammunition and air defense mainly, including those you've already mentioned. And uh, we've got strong, highest level of presence and strong interest. And my president reassured them that we are focusing on developing joint defense industry capabilities, working together on building the arsenal of the free world. So these discussions are fruitful. Uh, we got a number of homework to do, and that's where we'll focus. Can you talk to me about air defenses? That's an- another thing that is very high on your list. It will be some time before the Ukrainians and the much desired F-16s and and modern aircraft will be operational. But can you talk to me about any news that you may have on the procurement of air defences, which are obviously so needed right now, particularly at a time when it's difficult for you to advance, given how the Russians have mined and booby-trapped swathes of area on the front lines. The air defences have been really, really important. Have you been able to make any headway on that? Uh, Julia, we focused on the number of projects where we uh, make what we call do-it-yourself air defense, so kind of collaborations or creativity solutions that give us quick wins, give us fast solutions. Part of that, is, again, is Franken-Sam portfolio of projects which we do with U.S. defense industry, but we got a number of projects like that we do locally on the ground. So this kind of solutions already started working on the ground and will get more to the battlefield in the nearest months. So that's our primary focus these days. Meanwhile, we are speaking with U.S. defense industry on the long-term joint solutions. It's interesting how you are referring a lot to projects. You're thinking the medium to long term as well as Ukraine's very immediate battle needs. It's really interesting watching how this war has unfolded and how both sides have increasingly used tech, uh, particularly because of fast turnarounds and the use of drones by both sides has also been really, really critical. Are you able to increase your use of drones and also given how the Russians have been doing the same 
what can you do to mitigate that? Are there sort of electronic jamming devices that you are asking for that you're working on? Given that this is quite a new emerging sort of battlefield tactic on both sides, how is Ukraine responding to that challenge? Julia, we grew our defense tech capabilities significantly. And for next year, you can buy half million small FPV drones as cheap as $300 a piece. You can buy thousands of those things that fly mid-range, like five to 700 kilometers, or over a thousand of those that fly over 1,000 kilometers. So finally, our capabilities are already there. We face scarce funding issues these days, but I'm sure we will solve them and we'll get the solution and those drones will get to the battlefield. And where are you sourcing them from? The Russians are getting huge numbers of cheap Chinese drones. Obviously, you have those incredible Bayaktar drones from Turkey, but those aren't the only ones you're using. And how exactly have they been a game changer for you? What kind of things can you do with them on the battlefield? I would say that the major part of drones are produced locally. So there are only several positions we still import. And we got some great solutions. And uh, I'm sure that lessons learned from our defense tech capabilities will be important for our strategic partners as well. Obviously, you gained worldwide respect at the start of the war for doing an insanely good job at keeping Ukraine's railways company. I'm sure every British person you have ever met has asked you to run our railway network. If you ever fancy a break from the Ukrainian war or when the war is over, it's quite embarrassing for us, really. When you moved to your position in government, Minister for Strategic Industries, What did you take with you from your successes in keeping those vital arteries open, the the railways that carried not only refugees and people across Ukraine whilst it was being bombarded, but also military equipment, humanitarian supplies? I mean, a truly incredible feat. How have you brought what you learned in that challenge and the successes you brought to what you're doing now in trying to secure what Ukraine needs to keep the battle going? Actually, ironness that something I brought from the railways to defense industry, because again, we've showed the whole world that railways is about iron people. And uh, I can tell you the defense industry, it's also about iron people. And uh, it's also got its iron people that work under shelling, that work day and night, that work hard to give iron things to our warriors at the battlefield to make Russians out. So that's the main thing I've brought from the railways and the desire to win as well. You've talked about a lot of your domestic production, how a lot of stuff is being made in Ukraine. It's not all being outsourced overseas, even if a lot of your defense industry has moved overseas. How worried are you about Russian attacks on your infrastructure over the winter period? We saw Russia doing that a lot last winter. Obviously, you need to keep the grid on. You need to keep the lights and the electricity on to feed those factories, which are working on churning out a lot of this equipment that you desperately need. How concerned are you? you about 
potential attacks onto your infrastructure? And is that something that you anticipate Russia will be doing in the coming weeks? Julia, they never stopped, actually. And uh, indeed, we are dependent on the critical infrastructure we have in the country, like electricity grid and so on. But again, they shall not only defense industry, they shall railways, they shall civilian buildings, they shall schools, uh, hospitals. And somehow we found a way how we can live with that for, again, all of the 657 days. So we are ready for this winter. We are ready to live through. Minister, thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure to speak to you. So, Richard, I thought that was a really fascinating conversation with Alexander Kamishin. And I remember you telling me when you had just got back from your trip to Kiev, where you had had face-to-face sit-downs with some pretty important people in the Zelensky administration. And one of the key things that had been communicated to you and you passed on in our podcast was the need for ammunition, shells, shells, shells. I mean, this was back in sort of the spring, early summer. They were saying that there was a a dire need of shells, particularly those 155 millimeter sort of NATO ready shells. The Ukrainians, their prayers weren't exactly answered, were they? They haven't received the shipments that they so desperately needed that they were ringing the alarm bells all the way back in spring. Yeah, well, I think ammunition has been a particular problem, mainly because the NATO inventories uh, were not very full. And therefore, you know, people's storage was run down. So when it came to NATO caliber ammunition, there wasn't a lot of it around. And then the problem with the material that the Ukrainians already had, it's the old Warsaw Pact, different caliber shells. It's the difference between 150 and 155 millimeters. And there aren't many places left in the world except Bulgaria and one or two others, you know, which continue to manufacture the old Warsaw Pact caliber. So they've had difficulties in both directions. And one of the characteristics of the war, well, early on and continuing has been the massive exchanges of artillery, and the number of shells expended in both directions, more by the Russians, but uh, also significant quantities by the Ukrainians. And just keeping up with supply has been hugely tricky. And I think that that's a problem that's not easily solved. They're talking about setting up new manufacturing hubs. But of course, to set up something to manufacture artillery shells, you can't do it overnight. I think it takes 18 months you know, to get a new factory up and running. So it's not a problem easily solved. And of course, the other problem that Ukrainians have is one of security. So it's better for them to manufacture outside Ukraine, where the factories are not strategic targets or can't be strategic targets. So I know that they had reached a deal with the Slovakians, but in the light of what's happened in the Slovakian election, I'm not sure what the position is on that now. And I mean, Bulgaria has been very important. And there's been recent reporting from the Bulgarians of Russians running disruption operations quite extensively across Bulgaria to um, frustrate the supply of defence material. Right. I mean, Alexander really wasn't wanting to be drawn on some of the political machinations at work. He wanted to stay very much on message. And he did say after we ended the interview that, you know, he comes from a background of doing things, of of actually, you know, putting stuff together and getting things done. Politics is kind of a different game. And it, it, it was clear that he perhaps 
not that he's not comfortable, but he prefers being in the sphere where things can get done rather than just talked about. But there is a lot of political machinations going around. And you know, I wondered what you thought of the fact that Donald Tusk is now in charge in Poland, whether you think perhaps if the Slovakians maybe take their foot off the gas, as the Americans would say, with regards to getting really involved in helping Ukraine and its military procurement, do you think maybe the Poles might step up? Well, Poland is crucial. And the previous Polish government agreed a massive increase in the Polish defence budget. And the Poles will be, if they carry out their expenditure plans, one of the largest militaries in Europe. And of course, they're sitting very close to what they consider the front line in Ukraine. So there's no question the Poles are going to play a big role. But I remember when I was in Poland last, this was on my way back from Ukraine, we met some quite key Polish people privately. It wasn't part of the organised visit. But I had dinner with a couple who were very well connected. And they said the Polish problem is, you know, politically they can take the decisions, but they have big problems also of implementation. So getting stuff done quickly in Poland is not straightforward. They haven't got the economy yet quite geared up to that pace. but. I think Poland will be perhaps, in European terms, apart from the UK, Kyiv's crucial ally. Uh, and obviously there are huge historic links, particularly between northern Ukraine and Poland anyway. So that linkage is natural. The big problem in Poland is quite, you know, taking political decisions is relatively straightforward and they do have a transformed economy. But implementation of you know strategic decisions takes time and you can write it down on paper and say wow look what the polls are doing but the reality is it isn't done with a flick of the fingers it's going to take a considerable amount of time for Poland to build up its defense capability in the way that it's announced and I don't think that will change under Tusk uh, I mean they will be the biggest I think spenders in terms percentage of GDP within NATO over the next three to four years. I mean, what do you think is going to happen in the months ahead? Because what we have seen, particularly in the last couple of months, is that all of the coffers, all of the stockpiles of things like shells, ammunitions, other heavy weapons that have been sent to Ukraine, all the stocks in Europe are being depleted. Even the Americans, their stocks are being depleted. There are national security concerns among Western nations who want to support Ukraine, but who don't want to leave their own nations divided. Given that we are at a stage of the fight where we are entering the bitter cold winter, we've already seen frustrations emerging even among Zelensky's cabinet, his defense minister describing it as a stalemate and Zelensky getting very angry at him for doing so. I mean, Richard, are European countries in denial? Are they doing enough to replenish their stocks? Obviously, these things have a really long lead time. What can we do? Because if things carry on, Ukraine's going to run out of things to shoot the Russians, and the Russians are just going to win. I suppose if you put it that boldly, yes, that is the risk. Russia has quantity and strength in depth. Ukraine has quality if it's sustained by the West, and it has to be sustained by the West to maintain the advantage of quality over quantity. So we are at a crucial point, which um, for most of us who watch this closely is extremely worrying. 
Because if the Americans don't resolve this clash in Congress between the Republicans linking the border issue with, as it were, the Ukrainian package, I think the consequences could be for the West very serious and very difficult. And you, you also have quite authoritative voices, you know, calling on the Ukrainians now to compromise and accept, you know, permanent loss of some of their territory. I, I mean, I was listening to some interview with Vance recently, the author of that extraordinary book, um, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, who is close to Trump and you know, is advocating a serious degree of compromise. I think what this boils down to is the leadership of President Biden. I mean, he's been very good on Ukraine. And can he sustain that leadership in difficult times? Because he's running into very choppy political water in Washington. And it's becoming, you know, a very sectionalized um, debate between two parties that seem to be in very different places. So I, I am worried. I mean, I think my prediction is there will probably be a compromise. Um, but there's no question that, well, our attention has been massively distracted by what's happening in Gaza. And I think that the sort of German and French support for the Ukrainians was somewhat equivocal, although there are signs, you know, of firmness in the German position. The problem is that Schultz in Germany has got a coalition which was equally as weak as, let's say, the political lineup in Washington. So Putin is sitting there waiting for, you know, political advantage to play the cards in his direction. And I'm not going to make any prediction as to which way they're going to be played, but at the moment one inclines to pessimism and worry. And you know I'm very hawkish on the Ukrainian issue. I think it's essential for the West to come out of this conflict on top. I mean, it's already a disaster for Russia. And whatever happens, it's going to take Russia years to recover from the setbacks of starting this war. But on the other hand, to allow Russia to reach a position where Putin can claim some sort of victory, I think is intensely dangerous for global security and European security in particular. So more on that, let's say that's what happens. Let's say Ukraine is forced to cede its territory. Let's say Putin in many ways technically, quote, wins. What happens? Because people are asking, look, this will be a disaster. He'll go for Estonia next. He'll go for Moldova or he'll... I mean, what do you think Putin winning actually means? Well, there is the solution if Ukraine is forced by circumstance, to compromise with the Russians. Let's say Trump is elected president and they're forced into an unwilling negotiation. The only solution in my book is that the bits of Ukraine or the significant majority of Ukraine, which is still Ukrainian, is armed to the teeth and becomes a member of NATO and becomes a member of the EU as well at the same time. That would be complicated because it would mean some sort of special dispensation for NATO because of Article 5, and you can't become a member when you have a territorial dispute with a neighbouring country because of Article 5. 
So there's you know quite a lot of creative thinking around this issue. Sure, but that's from the European side, what happens if Putin wins. I'm asking what on the Russian side happens if Putin wins. Will Putin stop with the areas he has seized from Ukraine? Will he relaunch another full-scale invasion? In, or will he not stop until he takes Kyiv? If he takes the whole of Ukraine, what happens next? Or will he be happy with just Ukraine? Russia's incapable of taking the whole of Ukraine. He can't do that. It's shown he can't do that. It can take the 18% of territory that it currently occupies, but it's not really showing that it can take any more territory than it's got. So, you know, you can imagine a frozen line of conflict. And as I say, if that were the situation, the only response from the West is a massively strengthened NATO, uh, which means increased defence expenditure across all major NATO countries. And, you know, that would have to be the major deterrent operating on the Russians so that they did not follow an expansionist policy. And bear in mind that, okay, I think Moldova is a specific problem because it's a very particular enclave and it's not part of NATO. If you talk about the Baltic republics, you're talking about part of NATO. So the situation there is different. But can you see Putin moving in on any other European nations, if not NATO nations? Well, I can certainly see Putin moving in on Moldova. I don't think that given the performance of the Russian military in this conflict, they're going to risk a major conflict with NATO. Um, they are likely to come off very, very badly. Even if there is a Trump administration in 2025, you think he won't risk? Because obviously Trump was very NATO sceptic when he was president. Well, yes, NATO sceptic, but... Uh, well, we're having to make big leaps here. And, um, you know, maybe... Obviously, you know, there are massive dangers and risks to a Trump re-election, which we all worry about. And, you know, even some of the people who worked closely, you know, with Trump in that administration are now understanding that it would be a disaster, I think, for Western security if he comes back into office. Who gets your vote if you had a vote? Well, if I had a vote in the States and, you know, I was a Republican, I'd be trying very hard to make sure that Nikki Haley, I think, out of the current candidates, became the candidate. I think, you know, OK, she's very right wing, but on the other hand, she's sensible. She's incredibly experienced. And I think she's performing very, very impressively in the debates. And I think she has a credible chance of winning an election as a Republican president because she will grasp a lot of centre voters who are dissatisfied with Biden's economic policies. And, you know, one can go into that in terms of US domestic politics. But at the moment, we're in a very tangled and difficult position. And I'm worried. And I'm, I wouldn't say I'm yet pessimistic, because I tend to try and avoid being pessimistic. But we're at a crucial point, And over the next six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, I think we'll begin to see. I mean, the important thing really is for Biden to get this $106 billion package through Congress. If he can't get that through Congress, I think there might be a compromise in the new year when Washington starts up again. And OK, that's pretty tenuous, but I'm pretty sure that we can hold the line. What Biden can do is he can supply the Ukrainians 
without funding additionally by drawing down on America's strategic defense reserves. Obviously, there's a big ris risk there. He can actually do that. And I've had some people who I know in the Pentagon suggest to me that the situation isn't quite as dire as the Ukrainians are making out. And actually, if you read um, the latest sort of assessments of what's happening, um, and the Russians are still suffering massive losses of men and material. And they haven't really made any significant gains. And the Ukrainians are, for the moment, holding the line. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.